With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is July the 23rd, and my guest is Tom W. Bell. Tom is a professor of law at Chapman University and the author of books such as Your Next Government, From Nation States to Stateless Nations, and Intellectual Privilege, Copyright, Common Law, and the Common Good. Tom, welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. Thank you, Nick. Glad to be here. Tom, what do you want listeners to know about you? I think they'd be most interested to know about my work on the side, really, of my teaching job, where I work with clients in the real world creating private legal systems. It's a kind of technology, the law. I think you can look at it that way. And given that your audience is interested in technology, I think they'd uh, find it refreshing to look at the law as a technological product. And I'm right out there on the cutting edge. I can tell them about, I guess it would be high tech in the law. That's exactly why I'm really, really excited to have you on today as a pioneer in that field. To preface the discussion, we will have guiding premise of this episode, as you said, will be that law, you can see law as a technology like software. It's key part of the operating system that societies run on. So I want this episode to provide my listeners with insights, how we can think about using technology to improve law and how kind of law is a technology to build other technologies on, right? So example, you know, you have a lot of business regulations in some countries when it comes to new drug development or new financial products. So that makes it either easier or harder to um, build innovations, right? And that's very important for entrepreneurs. We'll talk about, we will talk about what legal technology is. We will talk about a couple of examples that Tom is working and how we can, how we can improve it. Tom, why do we have laws in the first place? Why do we have laws in the first place? Well, because we humans are individual agents with conflicting ends in a world of scarce resources. And therefore, we need rules to help us get along so that we at least don't kill each other um, or steal each other's stuff, but also so that we can coordinate our efforts to do productive, cooperative, really great things. The law can certainly get in the way of that, but if it's a good legal system, it helps us uh, work together to achieve the things we, we want to do. When does a law start counting as a law? Does it have to be written down? Does it have to be understood by everyone? What's, what's sort of not a law? Ooh, good question. Very the theoretical and philosophical. Well, um, people talk about the laws of nature. So you could say a law is simply um, an observed regularity. 
And in that sense, I think customs, in a way, count as laws. So when I greet someone, it's nice to smile and you know offer my name and ask them how they are, and they do likewise. And there's no law about that, but uh, we do it nonetheless. It's an observed behavior. Of course, so what we're really interested in, I think, is um, the kinds of laws that you can write down. You don't have to. The common law is really not written down in one place. It's the epiphenomenon we observe from different decisions of different courts in different places over time. But um, I guess you could say even then someone writes down each of those decisions. But that's the kind of law I think you and I will talk about, Nick, because custom is very powerful. It's important to think about, but that's not the kind of thing that you and I or legislators or, or judges can change. Custom is just what people do. Law, as I think concerns us will be more what people consciously create. And um, it can be written down. It is not always written down, but um, the stuff I do is written down for the most part. I'm designing systems for my clients that are written down in the first instance. And once they're up and running, I'm sure customs will come out of that. But um, yeah, so you asked me, what is the law? And I, I guess I'd say for our purposes, it would be, um, well, I'll use Lon Fuller's definition. It's the enterprise of subjecting human conduct to the governance of rules. I'll say that again. The enterprise of subjecting human conduct to the governance of rules. And I could say more about that definition. I'll, I'll just hit one word in particular, the enterprise. Lon Fuller, big fan of his jurisprudence, emphasized that um, it's not just an order from on high, and it's not just something you do once and inscribe in a stone tablet and walk away from. It's an ongoing process, enterprise. So it's not just writing down the rules, but making sure they're implemented well, interpreted well, that they're changed when they don't work. So let's use that as our definition of law. You said something very interesting, right? So there's formal law and there's something like informal law, right? Customs. They'll help people behave with each other, be nice to your grandparents or your family, you help out a friend that's in need, these things like that aren't like written down, but um, it's customary and it governs our behavior, right? Others hold us accountable and sometimes they even enforce some of these behaviors without there being a written law, right? I think it's interesting how these two interact, right? Because formal law sometimes can override or sort of interfere with some of these sort of more customary laws, right? Yes, and... Um... Uh, I'll give you an example. For example, in many cultures, sad to say, racism is uh, customary. No one says you should be racist, uh, but people do it. It's just the way they grow up, what they're taught or what they see around them. And then people come in with laws and they say, well, that's just not a good way to treat people. And that can, as you noted, change what you kind of hope it will change customary behavior. Customary uh, behavior is very hard to change, as I think racism demonstrates. Uh, a point to make here is uh, you started out saying custom is the way we treat our grandparents, the way we treat our friends. And I would say also it's most of what we do uh, with people in business. In fact, I don't want to oversell the law. To me, the law is kind of like guardrails. It tells us what not to do, really, but it doesn't fill our days. I mean, I think a legal system is a failure, and I think we see these failures all around us, when it's dictating everything that everybody does all the time. It's a total disaster. We don't want written rules to tell us what to do. It's very unnatural. It's very inefficient. The better approach or the better result, I'll say, is when people live in a system where they're able to do the things that come naturally to them, to treat their coworkers nicely, to cooperate with people towards productive ends, and then only once in a great while, somebody 
you know, dings their car door or defames them. And then they got to whip out the law and fix that problem. Or to use another analogy, I mean, a healthy society just kind of operates like a healthy person without intervention. But then once in a while, you cut your finger and you have to get a Band-Aid. To me, the law is kind of that Band-Aid. We need it. We need first aid sometimes. It can save our lives. Should it be the thing that we obsess about all the time? No, then you're hypochondriac and that's itself unhealthy. What is common law? Traditionally, the common law is, as I said earlier, the epiphenomenon, meaning it's a result of this kind of disaggregated process. It's like a mist rising off of water. The epiphenomenon that we get from many different decisions of many different courts and many different places and times. Now, most people don't experience the common law that way. Usually they understand it as the decision of, say, a Supreme Court or maybe some um, commentator like Blackstone, who's very authoritative, and you want to know what the common law of, of, say, assault and battery is, you go read Blackstone or you read this important opinion that maybe regulates your jurisdiction. But strictly speaking, the common law is not in one place. It's a little bit, it's a spontaneous or unplanned order. It's a little bit like language itself. It arises from all the ways people talk in all different places. So in English, we know you need to have a subject verb agreement and you can write down that rule, but the rule follows the behavior. And the common law is rather like that. Uh, we know that it's offensive when people uh, touch others against their will. You know, that's basically a battery. It's an intentional offensive touching of another person. And it's written down, but we uh, call that the common law because court after court after court has said things like, well, if you slap somebody in the face unprovoked, that's assault. If you tug on their sleeve and they tell you, leave me alone that's assault. There's just all these variations on that theme. Courts tell us this particular thing that happened. This person spat on another person. That is also assault. And they tell us an example after example, an example that all these things are assaults. And then some commentator like Blackstone comes along and says, summing it up, we can say assault is an intentional offensive touching of another person. So that's how the common law kind of arises as a spontaneous or unplanned order. I'm a law professor in my day job. We try to boil it down to a few words and that's useful. I think it's essential, but that's not really what the common law is. It's um, wilder and more natural than that. How is it different from other kinds of law that are practiced today? Unfortunately, most people, when they think of the law, they think of what the sovereign says. They think about, you know, somebody in a capital or in the old days, someone sitting on a throne who thumps their mace on the floor and says, this is the new rule. You have to bow to the king when he walks past, or this is the new rule. You have to limit your carbon emissions. And it's an order from on high. It's top down. It's actually the opposite of the common law. The common law comes from the bottom up and law as command or statutory law regulations that comes from on high to people subject to the rules. It's really a system of command. It's a command economy when you have people in the central of the, the, the center of power telling what everyone else what to do. Unfortunately, most people, when they think about the law these days, that's the only thing they think of. They think about what legislatures command and what regulators say they have to do because so much of that has um, kind of supplanted the common law. Much of my work is about how we need to appreciate the common law. It is on its own capable of wonders. And indeed, I think much of the, the command or statutory law 
we have in our world today is unnecessary and harmful. It's, um, yeah, it's something we need less of. We need more common law, less, uh, I don't even want to call them laws. I call them, you know, orders or commands. We need fewer commands and more common law in our world. So statutory law is centralized and common law is decentralized. Yes. Those are, those are kind of, you know, idealized versions of it, but those are good models to understand. What other kinds, are there other kinds of legal systems out there that practice right now in different countries or have been practiced historically? Wow. There's a big question. Um, my friend and colleague, David Friedman has a book, I think it's in draft form and you can get it online. I don't think he's finalized it and published it yet. It's called something like, um, I think it's like unusual I know it's legal out. systems. It's called legal systems. Yeah, I know it's out. It's called it's out. legal systems very different from our own. Yeah, you go. Legal systems. That's what I was actually yeah. pointing at because he looks into very interesting systems of law like Chinese imperial law, Somali law, mm -hmm. the law of medieval saga Iceland, the law of pirates. And gypsies, yeah. of law and yeah, exactly. ancient Rome and the point Sorry, is ancient that, Athens. Exactly. And we're kind of used to, and to be honest, I was probably and up until I learned more, um, you know, about your work, about Darius Friedman's work, about the economics of law, um, that I was like, oh, statutory law is just one doing it. Yeah. Not different kinds of statutory law. Yeah. It's a, there's a wonderful variety across all of human cultures and times. Uh, different kinds of legal systems. In the world today, um, there's kind of one big divide, if you want to be kind of crude about it. There's the common law-based legal systems and the civil law-based legal systems. That's the way most commentators kind of chop up the world. And this is setting aside all the customary legal systems, of which there's a vast variety. Um, in common law, we've talked about, and the common law legal systems are basically those that were influenced by uh, England, which is had a vast reach across time and space. It's, uh, it's invaded so many countries and uh, brought its legal system with it and left it behind when it left. So that's, of course, uh, England, Wales, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, of course, the United States. Uh, there's some places in Africa. I think it's uh, Botswana has a common law-based legal system. Uh, Hong Kong, Singapore. And um, I could say more about how even today, uh, for example, Prosper basically, um, well, kind of helped them with this, uh, has kind of brought common law to what used to be a civil law country. But let's go ahead and say something about civil law. Most of the civil law systems are somehow derived from the, from the Napoleonic Code. There's other sources. Uh, and and it's a, I think that's more variegated. The, the, the civil law as an idea is very much the kind of command and control model of law. The Napoleonic Code was written down and told you what to do, and courts don't have as much leeway in a civil law system to come up with their own interpretations. Allegedly, there's no stare decisis in civil law systems, so if a court decides something under the civil law, that does not bind another court. In common law systems, they have stare decisis, a system of precedent, so that other courts are either, it depends on whether a particular court is in a hierarchy. If a higher court in the hierarchy says, you know, this is the way we interpret this common law principle, then the lower courts are supposed to do it. Sometimes it's a kind of a, a sister or brother court, you know, kind of parallel. And you kind of look over the fence and you say, I don't have to follow that precedent. But wow, that was really good what they did. there, And I can see people are happy with it. I'm going to adopt it too. It's persuasive. So that's the big distinction of the world today, the common law systems and the civil law. And just to return to our theme, you know, I don't want your listeners to 
you know, get lost in this. We're talking about technologies. You could imagine someone having a similar discussion about um, you know, the technology of flight. You could say, well, you have fixed wing aircraft, helicopters, and then you have lighter than aircraft like balloons and blimps and zeppelins. And um, that's kind of what we're doing here. We're talking about laws of technology and mapping out the different ways of subjecting human conduct to the governance of rules. Fantastic. One objection that many people would have when they hear it, and I probably had that, is what about uh, equality in front of the law? Doesn't don't the same laws have to be applying to everyone if we want to have equality before the law? That's a beautiful ideal, and I certainly agree. If you want equality before the law, the same rule should apply to everyone. But I'll observe that that ideal is really not implemented very well. For example, in the United States, we have governmental immunity. So the people who go around with badges and usually guns basically don't have to follow the same rules they impose on us. They're not totally exempt from the law, but you know they can do things that other people can't. And they can even do things that after the fact, courts say, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Under a doctrine of qualified immunity in the United States, police officers get sort of one bite at the apple. So they get to like do things that uh, a court will later say, oh, that was unconstitutional. You shouldn't have done that. But there's no ramification. The, the police officers get off the hook. They don't have to pay damages. Why? Well, you know, it wasn't clearly established constitutional law. Well, I must observe, Nick, that you and I, well, you probably don't have to put up with this U.S. legal system. I do. Um, I don't get that same treatment. You know, if I get the law wrong, I don't get and it's frequently unclear. But if I get it wrong, court says, you got it wrong, too bad for you. But it wasn't clear. Do I get qualified? No, you don't get qualified immunity. And I've written about this in my book, Your Next Government, because I think it's atrocious. I think it's offensive. I think it's, it's not consistent with the rule of law. So yes, there is an ideal of equality before the law. It's, what can I say, where I hope getting there. Back in the older days, the king was completely above the law, right? He had... Uh, complete immunity from anything. He could walk around and steal from peasants and enslave them, and it just didn't matter. He was above the law. And it was that sort of thing, the, the privileges of the nobility that caused the Americans, one of many things, but that was on the list, definitely, that caused the Americans to revolt against England and say, well, we just don't like this king stuff. We're going to do it our own way. We're going to have a republic of equals. And alas, Americans have not implemented that ideal perfectly. In fact, I've done the math on this. We now have as a percentage, we have more state and federal government employees who have these special privileges than England had uh, members of the nobility when we revolted from them. There's definitely some things we need to change in this world, and that's why I do the work I do. I'm trying to create more competition in legal systems so that people can have choices and we can discover better ways to live together. Because I don't think we're doing everything right right now. We're doing, in fact, many things quite badly. Is it right to describe the core of your idea as polycentric law? Well, the core of my idea, I'm not sure I have you know, my idea, but I will say um, I'm really interested in polycentric law. I, st I actually wrote about it before I went to law school. All through law school, I was thinking about it. And I think it's one of the few places Wikipedia ever has taken notice of me. They say I coined the word. And I think it's a really thing to have in mind when you're trying to figure out the world of law is that... The law is not just what the king or legislature says. In fact, the law comes from many different sources, and these different sources are in competition. 
And I think it's mostly a good thing. Now, I don't want to present polycentric law as always good. We should have, we should push it to the max. It's more as if I want to say to people, hey, there's this way to view the world. Please notice that you can understand uh, the law as polycentric, and that will give you a more rich and accurate view of the real world. If you only think of the law as it's what the king says or what the sovereign commands, you're going to miss out on not just the way the world is, because we live in a polycentric world, but also how the world could be. Now, the, the thing I want to emphasize again is I don't want to say all oh, polycentric law is per se good. It can be bad. It depends on how you implement it, right? Sometimes legal systems conflict and we have things like the war in Ukraine, basically two ways of, of living, two legal systems. I mean, it's also military and political systems, but part of it is these legal systems kind of banging together and disagreeing about how to order the affairs of society. And at least in that implementation, having two legal systems fighting over things is not good. It's terrible. They're being quite violent. And you can also think of times in history when after the fall of the Roman Empire, when it looks like things just went to seed, you know, we lost vast amounts of wealth, populations decreased, trade networks collapsed because every little fiefdom had its own law. And when you came up to the border of one, you had to pay a toll at best to, you know, be allowed passage. And it was just, you know, it was completely inefficient. So Having more legal systems can be good or bad. It depends on how they interact and what the content of those legal systems is. But it is a fact. We live in a world that is polycentric. And um, I think we could make our world much better by, in a controlled way, making it more polycentric. That's, that's basically what my work is about. So I give this example a lot when I talk to entrepreneurs because it's something that they all have to deal with. And I was wondering if that fits your definition of polycentric law. So business incorporation, right? So most entrepreneurs that want to do tech companies incorporate in the state of Delaware. Do that even when um, domiciled and working from Germany and offering my products there, right? So in a way, I have sort of this international market of different legal system that I can use for governing the company that I, that I found, right? So also incorporate like in Germany or... I could incorporate in the Cayman Islands or, or wherever, right? So is that an example? I think it is, yes. Uh, in fact, I've been working most recently on the Catawba Digital Economic Zone, and they want to offer competition to Delaware. They're quite upfront about that. Like Delaware, they are going to open their doors to anyone in the world. Then I don't think they're offering actually corporations yet, but LLCs, basically legal persons. They're offering legal persons that will be registered under the legal system of the Catawba um, Digital Economic Zone. And then those legal persons can do business in the zone. It'll be a virtual jurisdiction. To return to your broader point, yes, um, that's a good example. Delaware has a huge chunk of the market. They've, they've been very clever about that. And um, well, we're going to give them some competition because they don't do it as well as perhaps they might. We'll see if we can get some of that market share. What I find so interesting of this example is when we talk to people about, you know, polycentric law and kind of market solutions to different problems, as opposed to having kind of a legal monopoly and having sort of the sovereign or a government authority deciding, everyone is thinking like, oh, there will be else and, you know, everyone could do what they want and there would be fraud and everything. And I point that as example because that's actually quite ordered, right? So people go to Delaware and there's tons of, of legal services, of technology services, 
There's tons of transparency around these companies. And, you know, the order is ensured by you can't get money, for example, from investors as a tech company, at least from investors in the United States, if you're not incorporated in Delaware, right? So there's this kind of equilibrium around different solutions, right? And other solutions, Delaware is dominant when it comes to the tech sector, but other places like Catabua will compete on blockchain and crypto, and they already are. Another jurisdiction, Curaçao, which is in the Caribbean, is competing when, it, when you want to offer online gambling services for like sports oh. betting or prediction. There's all these kinds of, you know, you can have competition, right? You have a market for it and it's kind of an ordered and emergent and spontaneous process. It's uh, well put, Nick. I can not really add much to that except, yeah, I agree. Um, sometimes you do have people, they worry, they have this kind of simplistic view of the law. I guess they're still imagining there's a king or they imagine president runs the country. You hear people talk about that. It's ridiculous. President doesn't run the country. Nobody runs a country. You can certainly, I think they're confusing two things. You can certainly affect a whole country by screwing things up. So on the negative side, sure, you can affect a whole country. But to make a country work, uh, no one person does that. It's a huge, complex system that is self-regulating, we hope. And the fact that there is competition is not a negative, it is a positive. That's how we find better solutions. And you're right to point to Delaware's position. Delaware's doing great. It obviously has lots of happy customers. But the fact that other jurisdictions are competing for incorporation or other legal persons doesn't mean it's chaotic. In fact, it probably makes it, I'm sure it makes it better. It keeps Delaware on its toes. The real disaster is when you have a monocentric system. When you have a monocentric system, well, that's like North Korea. There's no competition for their legal system because if you don't like it, you can't even escape. And what's the result? Well, it's the same as monopolies everywhere. It's abuse of the people who are forced to consume the services. So polycentricity, um, yes, it can have its downsides. You know, it can be done wrong. Maybe you can have too much of the wrong kind, for sure. I don't want to oversell it. But what we really should worry about is monocentricity. When there's a monopoly, especially in the law, because it's one thing to have a monopoly on, you know, uh, let's think something people worry about on um, a search engine. So that's pretty bad, but it's still not as bad as a monopoly in the law because the law has the power to take away your property, to take away, to take away your freedom, to take away your life in North Korea. If they don't like what you say about Kim. They can kill you. We need competition to free people from that sort of thing. Are there entire countries that are run only on common law? I don't think I can say that. Um, no, I, one of my longest projects I've been working on, Free Society Project, comes closest to trying to do that. Now, it hasn't launched yet. We're basically still building out the system. But we're trying to make it a, as decentralized a system as possible. I can't say it's all run on the common law, but I can say when and if it's up and running, it will be highly decentralized. Mm, no, I don't think I can say any country really is only common law. Um, for example, just take, you know, the United States. Common law plays an important role here, but there's all kinds of statutes and regulations. And for a big, complicated place like the United States, that's probably appropriate. I mean, if you want the United States to have a national defense, you don't get a national defense from the common law. That requires central authorities getting taxes, planning all kinds of weapon systems. I'm sure they do terrible things. And maybe some people would say, I don't want the United States to have a national defense. I'm a pacifist, but you know, you talk to most Americans, they're pretty happy having strong defense. They're worried about maybe not their neighbors, but you know, other countries in the world. 
So no, I can't say there's any one country that's run completely on the common law. I can say we could have the common law do more. I have advocated that. For example, in a particular area, copyright, I think we should basically work towards decreasing the influence of copyright. I can envision a day when we have no copyright and the common law does everything that we want done in that area. A lot of my listeners are from Latin America. Are some countries in Latin America doing or using a lot of common law? No. Um, in fact, I'm thinking now, kind of running through in my head, I can't think of any common law countries that we would describe as Latin. Um, now, there are some countries in Latin America that, thanks to uh, the influence of Britain, have some common law influences, certainly in the Caribbean, the Bahamas, for example. I think Belize also. And of course, there's Prospera. Prospera is a really interesting example of a, a civil law country, Honduras, in Central America, a Latin country. It was, uh, you know, uh, colonized by the Spanish that has made an effort to bring in the common law. They passed a statute, the ZA statute, that it's quite charming the way they refer to it. They say, among other things in the statute, they say, we want to encourage, this isn't a direct quote, but this is basically what they say. We want to encourage outside foreign private investors to come and set up these special jurisdictions and to um, implement their own legal systems including, and they call it, this is, I will quote them, Anglo-Saxon. That's their, how they refer to the common law system, is they call it Anglo-Saxon, quite charming, like picturing people wearing furs with, you know, horned helmets. But they meant, basically, the same kind of legal system as in Hong Kong. In fact, uh, the founders of the Zeta system said, we want to create a Hong Kong in, in Central America. And they didn't mean, you know, a, a city-state that the Chinese are running. They meant a place different from the surrounding jurisdictions where the common law is implemented. And it seems like in Hong Kong, traditionally, I mean, Hong Kong's in a different and difficult place right now. As of about the last hundred years or so, Hong Kong thrived in large part because it was under the common law. And so Honduras has said, we want more common law in um, our country in these special jurisdictions, the ZAs. But apart from that, I can't say there's been much movement towards the common law in Latin America or, or Central or South America. I hope that changes. I think common law has a lot to offer. Just to take a step back. So we're now talking about you know, special jurisdictions, places around the world that are able to develop their own law codes, sometimes based on the common law like Prospera. And mm -hmm. you, Tom, are one of the engineers of kind of you know, different legal stacks that have been tried out in different countries. So I'd love to talk about some of your work in some of those places in any order that you'd like to. We can start with Prospera, Catabua, the Free Society Project, or Seasteading. Okay. Um, well, let me take a step back to um, how I got started in this whole special jurisdiction stuff. And it was in Honduras under the statute prior to the ZA statute, the I guess you'd call it RED statute, R-E-D, as a different acronym. And back then I started working with Patry Friedman, son of David Friedman, who was a son of Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist. I was working with Patry and um, that's how I got started on these special jurisdictions. And then that transitioned to the ZA system I, and I moved over to another team and working under the ZA system 
And remember I said earlier, the ZA system is set up to invite the common law into these special jurisdictions. So I'm talking with my team, I'm kind of the legal engineer, and the question comes up, you know, where are we going to, how are we going to bring the common law to Honduras? And there's basically a couple of, there was one option on the table. I think I, I invented another option. The, the option on the table then was, well, you invite in a foreign common law country to basically run your zone. And this was the initial model of the charter city promoted by Paul Romer. And he thought maybe Canada was a good candidate, that we would have the Canadians come down to Honduras and basically kind of adopt this zone and implement good old Canadian rules in the zone. And as soon as I heard this, and I don't think I was the only person, but I was a little surprised other people didn't scream us from the rooftops. I thought it will never work. Do you think the Hondurans are going to let Canadians come down and plant their flag on Honduran soil and say, we from the North are here to show you how it's done? Do, do you not realize, I want to say to the people who advocate that model, that Honduras has seen the dark side of colonialism, okay? <laughs> and they're proud people. Their country has problems, but they're still patriots. There's no way they're going to let you do that. You have to be politically deaf or blind to think that could ever fly. Well, then question is, if you don't have a common law country come and do things, what are you going to do? And that's where I came up with Ulex. So Ulex is, um, you can find it on GitHub. Basically, Ulex is an open source legal system, an open source legal system. And what I've done in creating Ulex is find private sources of common law rules. They are flag free, as I like to say. This wasn't hard for me because I'm a legal academic. I know all about the restatements of the common law and uniform commercial codes and model statutes. And all three of those things are creations of private organizations. For example, the restatements of the common law are created by the American Law Institute. It's not a government body. It's a private institution. It's made up of esteemed lawyers and judges and academics and what they do in their restatements of common law is they basically, and this is beautiful for, for my purposes, so I seized upon it. They basically take those common law rules we were talking about earlier, which are really only embodied in scattered court opinions, and they boil them down to what looks like a civil code. So you can go find the restatement second of torts. And it will give you pretty much that definition of assault that I gave you a few minutes ago. And they have it in this section by section in a, in, a, in a numbered, organized outline. And you can get into this outline and find in there, there will be a rule that defines assault as an intentional offensive touching. And now it's written in black and white. And you can put that in front of a, an attorney who's used to the civil law, and it makes perfect sense to them. They don't have to go read countless court opinions and figure it out on their own. They don't have to go to an American law school and sit through classes where the professor does that work. They can just buy a copy of the Restatement Second of Torts, open it up, run their finger down the outline, find assault, and know what the rule is. So I took a whole bunch of these sources, private sources of common law rules, and other rules too, not just common law rules. The Uniform Commercial Code is um, another thing entirely, and those aren't common law rules, but they are kind of really well-written rules for commerce that have been adopted throughout the United States, authored by private organizations. I think it's the uh, ULC and the NCCUSL. 
basically private organizations have created these model statutes and uniform commercial codes so that states in the United States can um, get some help creating good laws. Some of these states in the United States are pretty small. Their legislatures sometimes are even part-time. And this allows them to have not just really good commercial rules, but also to have the same commercial rules that other states use. Very convenient. If you're a small state, you don't have professional legislature, as legislators, you get this help from professional private organizations. They kind of give you on a plate a bunch of legislation that is pretty darn good. So what I did with Ulex was I kind of took my basket to the library and I went in and I started grabbing books, metaphorically speaking, and I filled my basket full of what I thought was great collection of private rules that covered everything that a society could worry about, assault, contracts, property rules, rules for incorporation, rules for wills and trusts, rules for adoption of children, all kinds of stuff. And I put it together in, in ULEX, ULEX, the open source legal system. And now I've used ULEX. Um, I started out with uh, Prospera. That's the third team of people I worked with in Honduras. I think I can say, Nick, I've worked longer on special jurisdictions in the Red and ZA space than anybody else I know, because I got started under the Red A system. I've been working, apart from Hondurans, you know, apart from Hondurans, there's a few reformers there who've been working on this stuff for years and years, most notably Octavio Barriento Sanchez. He's kind of the, the genius behind the ZA system. You mentioned Paul Romer. Paul Romer is also a Nobel Prize winning economist. Um, and she was looking at why is it that countries, that many countries stay poor for a very long time um, and don't seem to improve. And other countries like Hong Kong or Singapore or Shenzhen, China or Dubai are developing rapidly into wealthy megacities within a few decades. And the answer he came up with is different rules, different laws. Right. So yes, the software kind of the idea of the exactly of the legal stack. And right. he then went on, okay, um, you know, most of existing countries, Nigeria or to Germany or wherever, sort of changing that software is extremely hard and next to impossible, right? So you need to, so what you want to create is competition. So you want to do run new experiments that show us what works better. That can be a model for countries to get to get more wealth, right? So that seemed like an interesting option for countries like Honduras to adopt because Honduras is a very poor country. So they were attracted to the idea that, you know, similar to China with special economic zones, they just let them run their business and legal matters while under political sovereignty from the mainland from the mainland. They can try an experiment, and if it works, then they can to other parts of the country, right? And this uh -huh. brings us to today, where we have some of these experiments in Prospera, Catawba Digital Zone, some of the projects that you're working on. Yes, that's the bigger picture, and your your analogy with software again holds up really well. Um, these countries often have great hardware, but their software, you know, it doesn't seem that great. Romer's idea was, well, let's bring in new legal software. And we'll do it in these small little areas. And that's, that's good for a couple of reasons. You mentioned one, Nick. It allows us to see if it works. You know, it's complicated. I don't know if there's anything more complicated than, you know, legal systems interacting with local culture. Very complicated. We shouldn't assume 
It's just the rules you have written down that make England or Hong Kong wealthy, successful places. You know, culture matters. It really does. But we don't know. And so a nice thing about a special jurisdiction is you can keep it within a small area. And if it doesn't work, it's just the investor there who gets burned. And also, you can do it. You can do it. That's an important point. You, it's, I used to work at the Cato Institute. And I really like the Cato Institute's work. That's a, a U.S.-based think tank. And it basically promotes um, freedom-friendly policies. And they're always advocating, you know, the United States should pass this law. The United States should reduce capital gains tax. The United States should... And they don't get very far. Why? Because it's very difficult to change the laws for a whole country. They're trying to do reforms like an inch deep and a mile wide. And you have to convince Congress and the president to pass those laws. And it's very difficult because many people have interests at stake. And so I tried that at Cato, and I've decided the way I want to do things is rather go an inch wide and a mile deep, find a little jurisdiction. And I tell you, I mean, Prosper is very small. It's about the size of a big golf course, okay? It's very small. People get very excited about it. You read like some of these hit pieces in The Guardian, and they make it sound like, you know, libertarians are taking over Honduras. I mean, they have this little, little tiny patch of land. It's far less than, you know, 0.01% of Honduras. And that makes it possible. You can set aside one little area. You're not trying to change the whole country. You don't have to convince everybody. There's one little area and you try it there. And if it works, hey, great. We can all learn from it. And maybe other Hondurans can benefit. And if it doesn't work, other Hondurans are not affected. And the investors who gave it a shot lose their money. Boo-hoo for them. They took their chances. So yes, that's an advantage to special jurisdictions. There's a couple things. You can actually do the reforms because it's small. And because these systems are so complicated, we should all be humble. We're not really sure it's going to work. Let's keep it small. It would be ridiculous to try to do these reforms. It would be dangerous to try to do these reforms nationwide suddenly. That's the stuff of revolution. We don't want that. No, we want it to be gradual, incremental, careful, protect innocent people from, from legislative experiments. Um, so back to ULEX. So that's where ULEX, the idea for ULEX came from. And basically, the, what's called now the Roatan Common Law Code, you can find this, uh, Prosper makes it available on their website. They have to, right? Because this is the rules, part of the rules in their system. I did some other things in building out the legal system for Prospera, um, came up with the idea of peer country regulation. We could talk about that, but today we're talking more mostly about the common law. And so this Roatan Common Law Code is basically to put it in terms your listeners will appreciate, it's a kernel. It's rather like, and my model was Linux. It's like the Linux kernel at the heart of, say, the Android operating system. The Android operating system is the most uh, popular operating system in the world. I think it counts as an operating system. It's on smartphones, right? And there is a Linux kernel at the heart of Android. And now I can say at the heart of the Prosper legal system is a Ulex kernel, which is branded as the Roatan common law code. And um, now I've had a chance to take this uh, same technology, this software, ULEX, and implement it in a couple of, other, couple of other places. The Catawba Digital Economic Zone, which launched just this spring, they brought me on board to do the same thing. I'm, um, you know, a little bit like a coder. I'm brought in to help integrate ULEX, this kernel, into bigger legal operating systems. And so now the Catawba Digital Economic Zone has a ULEX kernel at its heart. And I also help them build out some other special rules that are uh, specific for digital commerce. So, you know, we have rules for NFTs and DAOs and things like that. That's not part of ULEX. That's kind of like, you know, other parts of the operating system. That's ULEX isn't the only thing I do. 
And then the um, Free Society Project, I mean, we haven't gone public yet, but I don't think I'm revealing much uh, to say it also has Ulex. Will, when it launches, it'll have Ulex at its heart. And again, as well as some other stuff, Ulex is not enough on its own. It's just like a kernel to, to run a whole legal system. But it is a very important part of the systems that I've worked on, because if you don't have these rules for contract law, for property law, for torts, um, it's really hard to do anything else. Now, those aren't enough on their own. So you do need those necessary, but not sufficient, I could say. So can you go in describing a bit more how the legal situation would be that for a company that wants to incorporate in Prospero or in Catawba? Sure. Um, let's talk about Catawba. That's the one I've worked on most recently. And after I left the Prospero team, uh, I'm still close to all those people. They're wonderful, uh, doing good work. You know, they've done things that I haven't really kept very close track of. So I'm not sh as sure how it now works in Prospero. Catawba, that's like, that was very recent in my menu. And they're still setting it up. You will come to the zone virtually. It will actually take up, I think, less than two acres, 1.8 acres. It'll basically be a server farm in um, a big a container, uh, you know, like one of these, these shipping containers you see on a, on a big ship or on the back of a truck, a server pod stuffed full of racks running, uh, you know, with servers running software and hooked into the internet. And so you will virtually go to that server pod and register your company as a legal person in the zone. That means you will be operating on the Indian reservation. That's very important for legal purposes because the Indians have sovereignty over their reservation. What happens on their reservation is largely, not completely, they don't have sovereignty with regard to tax rules. The IRS still gets to tax things there. But with regard to all the things that we care about in terms of doing internet commerce, the Catawba Indian nation has sovereignty over this commerce on its reservation. So if your virtual business is operating on the server pod on the reservation, you're on the reservation and you're under Catawba law. So you'll go there, create a legal person. It looks like it will be probably an LLC. There's going to be some other options eventually, but I think they're starting with a limited liability company. And it will be a legal person. You yourself will never do business in the zone. Your legal person will do business in the zone. And it will do business with other legal persons that are also created under the zone law. It'll be rather like a virtual trading post. In fact, it's not dissimilar to the kind of setup that many of your listeners will be familiar with from playing online computer games. You put on a skin and you go to Fortnite and you, you, know, you have a character there. And in Fortnite, you have adventures and do things through your character. It's very much like that, legally speaking, or will be in the Catawba Digital Economic Zone. Your skin will be your LLC incorporated, um, that's not quite the word to use, we'll say form, under the Catawba rules. And it will interact just like in Fortnite, you interact with other parties playing the games that you're playing. In the zone, you'll be interacting with other businesses in this virtual jurisdiction. And you'll be doing things like, you know, trading Bitcoin or, you know, trading on an idea futures market, I hope, prediction market, I hope someday, buying and selling NFTs, all the things that so many innovators are trying to do elsewhere in the world and constantly getting static from regulators who say, well, that's a security. You can't do that. Oh, that's gambling. You can't do that. Well, you know, on the Catawba 
digital economic zone, you're going to be able to do it. We're going to make sure you can do it. And it'll be a safe place to have these kinds of exchanges. Not because it's anarchic. No, anarchy means chaos to a lawyer. And that's not good. It's going to be orderly because there's going to be a great set of rules that they're clear and simple and that work that will allow, give people the structure they need to do business in a fair and efficient way. That's what we think it'll look like. How would it work with security tokens? And I'm asking specifically because that's something that concerns me because, you know, security tokens can be a great thing. If you tokenize like real world assets, like real estate, for example, or buildings, you can have a more liquid market for it. And that's great. But you know, any security token offering is under SEC rules. You need to be registered with mm -hmm. them and to have mm -hmm. extra um, territorial jurisdiction, right? So even if you're like in Hong Kong or anywhere else in the world and you sell to an American citizen, they can mm -hmm. go after you. Well, I think we're going to have to, um, I'll say, educate the SEC about um, exactly what the sovereignty of Kataba nation means. But... And this is just me speaking for myself and my view of things. I'm not speaking for Kataba. I'm not, you know, part of their management. But here's the way I view it. Suppose I'm an American and I read about on the internet that France, say, has a um, stock exchange and I want to participate in it. And I get on a plane and I fly to Paris and I put down my money and I buy securities on that stock exchange and hopefully I make a bunch of money. And I bring my money, my EU, uh, my, my euros back to the United States, or maybe I change them into dollars there, whatever, come back to the United States. And I had a nice vacation. I made a lot of money in France. And the SEC has nothing to say about that. Now, the SEC will have something to say if that French stock exchange um, you know, reaches out to me in the United States and I sitting at my desk in, you know, in Orange County I'm trading, if I'm trading, sitting at my desk in Orange County on that French stock exchange, then the SEC could say, hey, you're doing this in America. We have a problem with that. Okay. So how does this play out to use that analogy in the Catawba context? Well, when you go to the Catawba virtual jurisdiction, that's like flying to France. You're doing it virtually, but you go there and you never as a person, will never trade in the Kataba Digital Economic Zone. The trading is only done by that legal person you create. And that legal person is resident in the zone. It is formed under the laws of the zone. It never is sitting at a desk in Orange County. It only lives in the zone. Now, it's true that I have you know, a lot of say over what my legal person that I've created in the zone does, the same could be true if I, I had an interest in a French company and the French company was trading in Paris. But the SEC's jurisdiction is broad, but it's not infinite. It cannot tell a French company what it can do in Paris. And ditto with regard to a company formed under the laws of the Catawba Digital Economic Zone, which is a sovereign jurisdiction, no less than France is sovereign, and operating under their laws. Now, I will admit to the SEC if they are like spying on me and watching me sitting at my desk and on my screen, I'm seeing things happening in the Catawba Digital Economic Zone, it will look to them, this is why we're going to have to educate them, as if I'm doing this thing they don't like. They might have problems with it, but I think if it were litigated, 
I hope it's not, but if it had to go to that degree, I think it would be found outside of the SEC's jurisdiction. If I have a legal person created in the zone and it's trading in the zone with other legal persons resident in the zone that is never under uh, the SEC's jurisdiction. In fact, it's never even in interstate commerce. Everything happens on the reservation. Now, again, I'm going to say I'm not speaking for the digital economic zone. I'm certainly not speaking for the SEC. It's just one guy talking, but that's my opinion. Uh, it's perhaps a bold opinion, but I have a paper coming out about this, actually. It'll be in the Journal of Special Jurisdictions, and it basically describes the legal foundations of the Catawba Digital Economic Zone and describes the federal statutes. So it's not like the Catawban, the, the Catawba nation is like thumbing its nose at the SEC. The reason it has this autonomy is because of a law that Congress passed and the president signed that said the Catawba have this autonomy. And the SEC takes orders from Congress and the president. So if the SEC has a problem with this, it'll have to suck it up. It'll have to have federal law change because it operates under federal law also. And basically, that's what the Catawba are doing. They have federal statutes that tell them they can do this. The SEC might have to be educated about that. Ditto the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, probably some other federal authorities who are used to throwing their weight around are going to have to get an education about the limits of their authority with regard to a sovereign, I emphasize that word, sovereign Indian nation. And let's talk a bit more about Prospera. So you already mentioned the idea of peer country regulation. Sure. Prospera wants to give people who are doing business there lots of options for doing business legally, of course. And they offer basically three. One is you operate under the Prospera rules, which are, you know, well-formed. I helped write a bunch of them. But uh, in some areas, they're a little bit less detailed than some people might like. And oftentimes businesses like detailed rules because then they're sure they're in the right. So one option is you use the existing but rather general rules, mostly just kind of common law rules. Another option is, and I don't know that anyone has done this yet, you make your own rules and you have them approved by the Prosper Council. So this would be collaborative process, envision, and someone says, look, um, you know, here's how I want to do things. I'm inspired by this country's regulations and it's consistent with your rules, but these are more detailed and I could work well under these rules. So that's option two. Option three is peer country regulation. And basically the way this works is you say, hello, Prospera, I'm here and I want to do some, let's say, biotech research. And I am authorized to do this research in Japan, which is from your point of view, a peer country. Um, they th think they have a list of peer countries and it's the usual suspects. It's, you know, OECD countries that are well-respected. They don't all have the same regulations, but I don't think we can sneer at the way Germany and Japan handle biotech research. They're both respectable jurisdictions and they do things differently. Thank goodness they do things differently from the FDA, but they're, you know, wonderful countries in terms of their respectability, their, how much they care for innocent people and for getting science right. So you say, I have satisfied Japanese regulations. I can prove that. And I'm going to continue operating under those rules in Prospera, the Japanese regulations. I'm just going to keep doing it here, what I also do or what I'm authorized to do in Japan. And this allows uh, companies to come to Prospera and not have to figure out a whole new regulatory regime. If they have succeeded in figuring out how to run things under the Japanese rules, they can come to Prospera and keep doing it. And that's peer country regulation. 
I'm very fascinated by how that system works. So I want to just rephrase it and ponder a bit on it and feel free to correct me if I mistook anything. But the general Prosper regulations include things like you have to agree to binding arbitration. If you cause any harm to someone, you can be sued and there's an arbitrator and you have to um, respect their decisions. You have to have liability insurance. So these are fairly general rules for you know doing any business or living in Prosper. So imagine the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, who's responsible for saying, oh, these drugs, you're allowed to take them and these you're not allowed to take. What if they said, you can take any of the drugs that are regulated, approved in any of these 20 countries, including Germany or Japan or, or Norway or Singapore. For example, you could have prevented or you could have saved probably 100,000 lives during the HIV epidemic because there were safe drugs available in Europe for with HIV in the 1980s and the FDA refused to allow it or to permit it. So I think that alone would be at least a 10x improvement. And the, sec and the third is that you can basically write your own regulations. So if you want to do like housing or real estate, you can adopt regulations. You can copy the ones of Houston or of Tokyo in Japan and modify them or adopt them as long as you can convince an arbitrator and an insurance to cover it. I also know for a fact that there is a company that has done that. I think that's brilliant. I think that is like the way they describe it is often like an app store you choose the legal stack that fits you best as long as you do have regulations and you do have oversight and you're liable for damages. Yes, I think you described it pretty well. And I'm glad you see the charms of that. And thank you for letting me know someone has actually done the kind of roll your own approach to regulation and prospera. As you might know, I'm, I might end up helping uh, another company uh, create its own regulations in the healthcare space. I'm very excited about that. I can help... Um, them to save lives by creating regulations, which do what regulations need to do, you know, protect innocent people, make sure the science is good, but that get around the really nightmarish limitations and delays by the FDA. I think that would be great. And I agree with you that uh, we should have been doing something like this a long time ago. It is, to me, outrageous. It's obscene that the FDA really has condemned people to die. And no one wants to seem to look at it that way, but I don't know how else to say it because the FDA is kind of squatting on treatments that other countries where people care just as much about human life as, as we care about human life in America. Other countries have said, these are drugs that are worth giving to patients and the FDA says, nope, no can do. To me, the FDA has blood on its hands. It's preventing people from getting the treatments that they want, that other countries say they need that um, can help them. Outrageous, outrageous. I'm very happy that I've helped uh, build Prosper for no other reason than it can perhaps demonstrate to places like America, where we have the FDA killing people through inaction. There's a better way. You don't have to let people die. You can trust other countries to also care about their citizens and perhaps even have a better approach than the FDA. We should be doing this right now with regard to infant uh, formula, right? We have a problem right now, a shortage of infant formula in the United States. A lot of that is driven by the FDA, which refuses to approve the import of formula for feeding infants that have, has not made it through. It's, I'm sure, well-meaning, but badly written or implemented regulations. It's a big deal. We have kids that need that stuff. And if it's good enough for, say, Norway babies, I don't know why it's not good enough for American babies. The FDA is getting in the way, 
people are suffering. That has to change. And Prosper, I hope, can uh, show us a better way. Exactly. I did a whole episode on this in episode four with Jessica Flanagan, who talks about pharmaceutical freedom and exactly about that topic. And I also mentioned there that what initially made me see the urgency of different approaches to this was the COVID pandemic, because basically the technology is allowing us to develop safe and, vac safe and effective vaccines uh, within days. Like the first Moderna vaccine was developed in a weekend in January 2020. So we have the means to fight future pandemic on the technology side, but our institutions like the FDA are not allowing it on time. So we had a modified version for the Omicron version of the virus, and the FDA allowed it only after the Omicron wave was over. So Typical. just seeing it right in front of our own eyes that people are dying because of, you know, the institutional sclerosis. And that's really what I want our listeners to take away, just to see the possibilities of that improved legal stack that Tom has engineered. And I find it so genius, I would compare it to the Bitcoin white paper, um, but it actually can be even more than that because you can build so many other technologies on top. Like you outlined your philosophy of basically having open source, basically like Linux on GitHub. So you can even like fork the legal code and improve it and um, adopt it to your circumstances. What I'm particularly interested in is a yeah, biotech and healthcare because it costs $4 billion to approve a drug through the FDA. So then we're building kind of an alternative pipeline here to get to make studies that drugs are safe and effective to sort of reach legitimacy in many countries around the world. I'm excited about it too. I'm glad you uh, you see, Nick, the, the promise. Uh, lawyers don't often get to do work like this. Uh, it's been thrilling, uh, exciting for me. I feel like I can help people save lives. I want to do that. I really want Prosper to thrive. Uh, we could talk about some of the challenges they're facing right now, but I think existence proofs are very important, especially in political contexts. You can talk yourself blue in the face. People are very conservative in the small C sense about um, implementing political reforms. And I guess they should be. There's so many dangerous ideas out there. But when they see it working, that's when their eyes open. They see it's possible because somewhere somebody's doing it. It's going to be hard for the FDA to, to maintain its policies if people can look at other countries and say, well, why do they get those drugs? Do, do they care less about human life? They don't. Why can't we do that? That's going to really, I think, implement, uh, it's going to help us to implement reforms in the United States. Exactly. It's, like it's the force of embarrassment. Is there anything else that you'd like to see more of when it comes to, to new startup cities and legal systems and legal stack that they implement? Hmm. I have another paper coming out. No, it's already come out, actually, also in the Journal of Special Jurisdictions. Um, it's about common law zones, and it's... Uh, an illustrated guide. I think that's what it call. it's called Common Law Zones and Illustrated Guide. So I found four zones, including Prospera. The other three are the Dubai International Financial Center, the Abu Dhabi Global Market, and the Astana International Financial Center in Kazakhstan. Four zones that basically have some kind of common law basis. And I'd like to see more of those. So four is good. I guess we could call the Catawba Digital Economic Zone, which back then was um, still in development when I wrote my paper. I guess if I were to write the paper today, I would have a fifth one, uh, but that's not enough. <laughs> I, want, I want to see lots of these um, common law zones and you know other zones too. I basically want a thousand flowers to bloom. We really don't know 
which, if any of them, are going to thrive, as I've noted, I hope with some humility in my voice, it's very difficult to know what is going to happen when you bring in new rules and you put it in a new place, another culture. Humans, just an individual human, is the most complicated uh, thing we can imagine, um, being individual humans ourselves. And then when humans get together and interact, wow, we just don't know what's going to happen. That's one reason to be against central planning, by the way. I mean, central planners, apart from not having the right incentives, they don't have the right information, enough information to know what to do. So more zones, more zones. I'm ready to help create more common law zones with ULEX or, you know, that's kind of my specialty. I, I would like to have more people doing what I'm doing. I often feel like I'm kind of alone out here. There's a few people doing what I'm doing. I feel like I need more competition. People I disagree with, but who might be right. Maybe maybe the Napoleonic Code is, you know, what we should be implementing. I honestly can't say I know. I'm doing what I think will work, but I'm just one guy. More zones, more efforts, diversity of efforts. I'd like to see that. Um, and I would like to see, once we get more of these zones going, a kind of um, network effect kick in. One reason I'm excited about having more than one jurisdiction now running ULEX is these jurisdictions will be able to work together. In fact, I'd love to see the Catawba Digital Economic Zone, which has a really well-built-out set of rules for digital commerce. I'd like to see them work somehow with Prospera, which has a great set of rules for real space because the Catawba Zone is not real space. It's only virtual. But Prospera really doesn't have any rules for digital commerce, no special rules. And so I could imagine these two zones, both of which are kind of running ULEX at their hearts, interacting somehow. I'm not sure how. I'm not you know, a diplomat. I'm not um, a corporate manager. But they're smart people at both places who want to make things work. And, and I, I, I liken it in my book, uh, Your Next Government. I talk about how, yes, the law is like software. And yes, it's really great to have good software running on your computer. So, you know, it's really great. You have Apple OS X or you have, I don't know about Windows or Linux, but you know, you have, your computer is so much better when you have a good operating system. And I've helped build those for special jurisdictions. Yay. I hope it helps those special jurisdictions work better. But what really makes computers powerful is when we can network them. That's why it's, that's, that was the really, after the PC, the personal computer, that was a big change. Now we have like these powerful devices on our desks, but wow, the internet really changed PCs. Now we're in a network. Now we can work with other people. That's when we get economies of scale and of scope. And I want to see the same thing happen with some of the jurisdictions I've helped create. I want them to network too. I hope it'll be easy for them because they're all running at heart, kind of the same OS. And I think that's when the magic will happen. I foresee um, this future where there's something like a new Hanseatic League. In the Middle Ages, there was this league of mostly independent city-states in Northern Europe, the Hanseatic League, which became very influential. I think you can argue it's what got Europe through the Middle Ages, these, these various trading towns. And they were basically run by merchants but it became very powerful, the Hanseatic League. They had their own navy. They fought and defeated kings. They fought pirates. They did diplomacy. I could see something like that in the future happening with many various special jurisdictions, each of them independent and sovereign in their own way, but interacting to create this nice network effect. It would be like an internet of special jurisdictions. That's kind of the future 
that I, I am working towards. It's long distance kind of thing. It's going to take us a while to get there, but you know, you have to have your eyes on the horizon to, to, to get anywhere. You have to, to look far ahead. And if you want to know what's Tom planning for, well, that's what I'm planning for. That's what I'm working for. That's one reason I have this mission to get ULEX installed in as many jurisdictions as I can. And insofar as I can to get these jurisdictions working together, because I think it could do for governance what the internet has done for computers. I think that's a perfect segue to close the conversation because I love that how you vividly describe that network of different startup cities and states because I see that kind of at the heart or the core of my vision, my mission in creating a venture capital fund. Because when I saw Prosper for the first time and the opportunity that that legal stack provides there, I was immediately thinking hundreds of ideas of technologies that we could build there that are held back because they're overregulated in most countries around the world. And I, I believe in a future and I want to help co-create that where we have dozens, maybe hundreds of such startup cities with different competitive advantages, right? So one will be great in Crypto Web 3, one will be great in biotech, the other one in drone technology or in hardware. Like we can let all flowers bloom as you said, and I want to help co-create and develop that ecosystem by helping entrepreneurs. And so if you're listening and you're interested in what we had to say here and you're wanting to check it out, please go to infinitafunds.com to find the conferences we're organizing this year to help build the industries of the future. And if you're interested in what Tom had to say about creating new network states, I have my website, tomwbell.com. Um, that's easy to remember if you remember my name. Um, and I don't do Twitter. I don't do Facebook. Um, uh, but you can, if you need to reach out to me, you can find me via those channels. I guess I'm on LinkedIn, um, I guess. I don't really, I, I, I get, feel a little embarrassed here that I'm not, um, I'm not all hooked into all this stuff. People could ask me but, for an introduction to you. There you go. There you go. I'm just so busy, Nick. I don't have time to look at pictures of kittens online and you know i just don't but um yeah people who need to uh find me and want to work with me on some of the stuff I, I like your inspiring vision too nick and um they they can find me if you want to find me i'm not that hard to find you can go to tomwbell.com and um you can access me there or talk to nick he knows how to reach <laughs> fantastic thank you so much tom for coming on the show thank you nick it's been a great pleasure Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.